Pontiac's War doesn't have a clear, well-defined narrative arc with decisive battles lost or won, enemy capitals taken, and armies surrendered. Like most insurgencies, Pontiac's War was chaotic, with momentum ebbing and flowing and coalitions forming and dissolving. What I'm saying here is that there's no dramatic season finale to Pontiac's War, and no clear winner either. The British Empire was able not only to retain, but to fully secure its new holdings in the interior of North America that it had won in the French and Indian War. But the empire was forced to reassess policies toward the native peoples and reverse or mitigate the high-handed policies that had provoked the insurgency in the first place. And the actions the British took to resolve Pontiac's war and to prevent insurgency from breaking out all over again would have massive unintended consequences, revolutionary consequences. Rather than tracking a timeline and trying to keep up with all the ebbs and flows of insurgent momentum, we're going to highlight a few of the major events and actions that brought Pontiac's war to a slow conclusion, like a fire burning itself out. One of the first things to bear in mind is that the societies of the native insurgents were tribal societies and they were not built for sustained warfare. Maintaining months-long sieges and extended campaigns just wasn't possible when it was necessary to disperse, to hunt and provision for winter, and to replenish depleted supplies of powder and lead, which wasn't easy to come by once captured ammunition had been exhausted. Some of the Indians in Pontiac's coalition were less than enthusiastic about his vision for pushing the British back across the Appalachian Mountains and seeing the restoration of French presence in the Great Lakes. Some have been more or less strong-armed into participation in the uprising around Detroit, and as the siege dragged on with no prospect of actually taking the post, alliances and coalitions began to fray. And it became increasingly difficult for Pontiac to maintain the illusion that the French king was going to wake up and send his armies back to North America to aid his Indian children in their war. The Treaty of Paris that ended the Seven Years' War, what we call in America the French and Indian War, which by the end of it had become a world war, had been signed in 1763. And while the British had not yet taken possession of the French forts in the Illinois country, and the Indian insurgents continued to receive some clandestine resupply from French traders, there was just no prospect of of French intervention. Pontiac knew this, but he attempted to suppress the information and all of its implications and continued to argue that Indian success would reverse the French withdrawal. I think Pontiac may have wanted to believe this was true, But at some level, he had to have known that this was BS. He was engaging in propaganda and disinformation that became increasingly difficult to sustain. As word filtered out into the Great Lakes country and the Illinois country that the treaty had been signed. The British Army had a significant battlefield success in the summer of 1763 that seriously blunted the momentum of the uprising, particularly 
the uprising of the Ohio country tribes, the Shawnee, the Delaware, the Western Seneca, known as the Mingo, and the Huron. In July 1763, after the, the fall of so many of the British outposts, British commanding General Jeffrey Amherst assigned Colonel Henry Bouquet to relieve the siege of Fort Pitt at the forks of the Ohio River. Bouquet was a Swiss mercenary in the service of the British crown, and he was probably the most able commander in North America in the 1760s. Bouquet's force, which was comprised in great part of Scottish Highlander troops, escorting a very well-stocked supply train, marched out of Carlisle, Pennsylvania on July 16th, headed west along Forbes Road, which was built during the French and Indian War. The Indians besieging Fort Pitt and raiding in the area around it got wind of Bouquet's advance and headed out to ambush his column, hoping to score another massive victory like they did when they slaughtered General Edward Braddock's command in the same forest back in 1755. But Henry Bouquet was no Edward Braddock, and the British had learned many lessons about forest warfare in the time since 1755. He held off an Indian assault on his column on August 5th, a mile east of Bushy Run Station. The next day, the Indians renewed their attack, and Bouquet pulled off an extremely dangerous and totally brilliant maneuver that won him the battle. His Highlanders faked a retreat or withdrawal, and the Indians, sensing a rout, just like what had happened back in 1755, rushed in, moving in for the kill. But Bouquet had drawn them into a kill box. His troops, Royal Americans and Highlanders, on either flank opened a withering fire on these charging tribesmen who had moved out into the open, and the retreating troops reversed their field and charged with the bayonet. The Highlanders, whom Bouquet praised as the bravest men I ever saw, routed the Indians and drove them from the field. Now, Bouquet had clearly won the day at Bushy Run, but historians debate how decisive the victory actually was. Bouquet had taken some heavy casualties, 50 dead, 60 wounded, and 5 missing out of a force of about 500 men. He had to abandon a good portion of the supplies he was carrying to get his beat-up force into Fort Pitt. The Indians had suffered an estimated 20 killed, but that was heavy losses for a native force who were extremely casualty-averse. And the losses may actually have been higher. Some estimates go as high as 60. And two prominent Delaware chiefs had been killed. I look at it this way. The victory wasn't decisive in the sense of breaking the back of the native insurgency in the Ohio country in western Pennsylvania, which is how it has often been portrayed. Raiding continued on the Pennsylvania frontier, some very acute, for a year after Bushy Run. We talked about that in the last episode. The Enoch Brown Schoolhouse Massacre occurred a full year after the Battle of Bushy Run. But a Braddock-style defeat would have been utterly disastrous for the British. Fort Pitt might well have fallen, and the Pennsylvania frontier would have been abandoned, and 
any settlers left would have, have been slaughtered. In averting that outcome, Bouquet had not just escaped disaster, he had hurt the Ohio tribes pretty badly. And when he mounted an expedition into the Ohio country the following year in 1764, the tribes had reason to be intimidated by him. So it wasn't decisive, but it was significant and definitely blunted the momentum of the insurgency. Gregory Avon's Dowd in War Under Heaven, Pontiac, the Indian Nations, and the British Empire notes, It has generally been treated as a heroic British victory, often as the decisive battle of the war, but its results were mixed. If the Indians meant to keep Pitt from being reinforced, they failed. If they meant to prevent it from being resupplied, they had considerable success. Bouquet's 390 survivors, many of them sick and wounded, made it to the fort, but they did so without most of the flour, which had to be abandoned if the wounded were to be carried to the fort. The Indians exacted so high a price that Bouquet discovered to his great mortification that he was unable to assist either forces from Niagara in an effort to establish Fort Presque Isle or Gladwin at Detroit in any material way. Amherst pressed Bouquet to go on the offensive, suggesting that he link up with Virginia volunteers to do so. This was out of the question. Bouquet could not feed any additional mouths. He instead sent eastward all non-combatants, and even some soldiers, to ease the demands on his commissary. He dedicated troops to the task of escorting all traffic on communications. As the officers and troops awakened from the proud dream of setting Indian villages afire to the harsh reality of another winter penned up in a garrison, Bouquet had to combat a spirit of discontent and desertion. Discouraged, too, however, were his enemies, who, by the end of August, had surrendered their own proud dream of eliminating Fort Pitt. Even as the fighting continued, the British government was moving toward mitigating some of the grievances that had led to the conflict in the first place. In the fall of 1763, Geoffrey Amherst finally got his wish and was recalled to England. He wasn't exactly disgraced. He didn't get a hero's welcome, but he would see promotion and a peerage. But his arrogance and contempt for the native peoples was removed from the picture. His successor was General Thomas Gage. You might recognize the name. A decade on, he would order his troops out of Boston to seize the powder stores of the colonial militia stored at Concord, Massachusetts, touching off the American Revolution. Gage wasn't especially sympathetic to the Indians, especially given the savage nature of the war that was underway. But he was pragmatic and much more open to listening to the advice of experts such as Indian Superintendent Sir William Johnson. For example, Amherst had rejected any notion of using Iroquois auxiliaries to help quell the uprising, and Gage was open to that idea. And Gage recognized that a parsimonious trade and gift policy was costly in the long run. It had started the war, which, of course, was more expensive than, than the gifts could ever have been. Ultimately, saving the crown from costly conflict was at the center of policy, and it would be for the next decade, and, in fact, was part of the tax policy that led to so much discontent and turmoil in the American colonies. Significantly, the British government recognized that the encroachment of settlers into native lands on the west side of the Appalachians 
was going to create perennial and costly conflicts. In October of 1763, King George decreed the proclamation line of 1763. The proclamation line, which was laid out along the Appalachian Divide, prohibited Anglo-American colonists from settling on lands that had been acquired from the French following the French and Indian War. The proclamation line would have major unintended consequences, and it frayed the relationship between Great Britain and her American colonies. The library of George Washington's Mount Vernon, which you can find at mountvernon.org, offers a nice summary of the issue. Though the British government assured its American citizens that the proclamation line was enacted for their protection, many interpreted the act as a pro-Indian measure. In restricting Anglo-American settlement beyond the Appalachians and prohibiting governors from transferring Native American lands to private companies or individuals unless previously acquired by Great Britain through an official treaty, the Crown formally acknowledged that Native Americans possessed certain land rights, evoking widespread colonial discontent and frustration. Britain's desire to maintain their mercantile economic system also encouraged the the creation of the proclamation line. Within the British mercantile world, colonies were to produce raw materials for export to the mother country where they would be produced into manufactured goods and sold to consumers within the empire. To keep her wealth internalized, Great Britain enacted a number of regulations throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, such as the Navigation Acts, prohibiting her colonies from trading with foreign markets. Following the French and Indian War, Britain feared that westward expansion would lead to a growth in commercial agriculture, allowing farmers to profit by smuggling excess crops to external Atlantic markets. Instead, the government sought to protect mercantilism by encouraging colonial growth to the north and south in an effort to populate the newly acquired provinces of Quebec, East Florida, and West Florida. This would not only limit the establishment of commercially profitable farms on newly acquired western lands, but it would also keep settlers within close range of Britain's economic and political influence. Consequently, many colonials of varying socioeconomic backgrounds viewed the proclamation line and its restrictions as repressive measures put in place by the Crown to secure increased control over affairs in their North American colonies. So that highlights the importance of the Western lands along the Appalachian frontier in British Crown policy and in the events that led up to the American Revolution. And other measures undertaken by the British government would also create and exacerbate tensions with American colonials, which we'll circle back to in just a bit. Meanwhile, among the tribes, Pontiac's prestige and influence was starting to wane. Politics and factionalism started to infect the insurgency, and the failure to take Detroit and the failure of the French to appear on the horizon damaged Pontiac's credibility. By 1764, he had pretty much decamped to the Illinois country where the British influence hadn't yet penetrated. Curiously, he he gradually sort of gravitated towards aligning with the British. It's really hard to discern why this happened, since we have almost no testimony from Pontiac himself. 
It seems that the British considered him the key to ending the war and began to court him. And this gave Pontiac some influence, which he was otherwise rapidly losing, and a route towards retaining his relevance. So, politics. In 1764, General Gage authorized two expeditions into territory controlled by the insurgent Indians. General John Bradstreet would move west from Fort Niagara into the Great Lakes region, and Colonel Bouquet would move west through Pennsylvania into the Ohio country to subdue the Shawnee, Mingo, and Delaware that he had beaten at Bushy Run. Gage and both of his subordinate commanders initially saw these as punitive expeditions that would impose harsh peace terms on the tribes, demand the return of captives, and insist on the handing over of those who had perpetrated assaults on the frontier, and those perpetrators were to be executed. In the end, those sorts of goals were unattainable. These were well-armed and powerful expeditions that posed a real threat to the Indians and unquestionably pushed them towards negotiating for peace, which many were ready to, to undertake anyway. But the expeditions were far too exposed and vulnerable to impose a Roman peace on unconquered tribes. As Dowd notes in regards to Bouquet's Ohio expedition and his goals of breaking the Indian insurgency, Bouquet was dreaming, and he was too careful a general not to know it. Such objectives were far beyond his force's capacity. As he undertook the actual campaign, which was hardly the unqualified conquest it has too often been deemed, he prudently and quietly revised both the plan of march and the terms of peace, implicitly recognizing that the Ohio Mingos, Shawnees, and Delawares retained considerable power and independence. British authorities like Sir William Johnson and his deputy George Crowan were anxious to resume trade with the native peoples of the interior for reasons of both policy and profit. Johnson had early on warned that cutting off gift-giving and being parsimonious with ammunition would lead to trouble, and he was clearly proven right. And it must be recognized that Johnson and Crowan were also in the business of trade, and their private interests were never very far separate from their public policy. Even Gage had come around to the belief that reopening trade would actually improve frontier security. But there was one group of people who could not be brought around to a belief that treating the Indians well was good policy. The frontier inhabitants of western Pennsylvania were traumatized by a decade of raids from the French and Indian War through Pontiac's War. Many had been killed in the most brutal fashion imaginable, and many more had been displaced from their homes, sometimes several times. As far as they were concerned, traders who provided ammunition to the Indians were providing the means for their destruction. When Crowan organized a massive trading caravan to head into the Ohio country, an ad hoc militia of frontiersmen from the Conococci Valley in south-central Pennsylvania resolved to stop it. They called themselves the Brave Fellows, 
but they would go down in history as black boys because they blackened their face with their faces with charcoal and paint. They were led by a frontiersman named James Smith who had been captured by Indians during the French and Indian War and learned their way of warfare living for several years among the French-aligned Kahnawaga Mohawk. Smith had organized a provincial scouting company during Pontiac's War, and they were sort of the, the classic frontier special operations unit that looked and fought like Indians. In his memoirs, many years later, Smith wrote, Sometime in May this year, 1763, about that time the Indians again commenced hostilities and were busily engaged in killing and scalping the frontier inhabitants in various parts of Pennsylvania. The whole Konakachi Valley from the north to the south mountain had been almost entirely evacuated during Braddock's War. As the people were now beginning to live at home again, they thought it hard to be driven away a second time and were determined, if possible, to make a stand. Therefore, they raised as much money by collections and subscriptions as would pay for a company of riflemen for several months. The subscribers met and elected a committee to manage the business. The committee appointed me captain and gave me the appointment of my subalterns. I chose two of the most active young men that I could find who had also been in captivity with the Indians. As we enlisted our men, we dressed them uniformly in the Indian manner, with breech clout, leggings, moccasins, and green shrouds, which we wore in the same manner that the Indians do, and nearly as the Highlanders wear their plaids. In place of hats, we wore red handkerchiefs, painted our faces red and black like Indian warriors. I taught them the Indian discipline, as I knew of no other at that time, which would answer the purposes much better than British." So Smith gathered his riflemen again to interdict the trade goods that were headed for the Ohio country in 1765. This led to multiple confrontations with the traders and then with British troops who were detailed to quell what authorities considered lawlessness. The actions of the black boys should not be confused with the lynch mob that was the Paxton boys back in 1763. The brave fellows, and Smith in particular, insisted that they were acting lawfully to interdict illegal goods from being smuggled to the Indians. The Black Boys episode was an early indicator of the tensions between the imperial factor and the American colonials. The Empire saw the Black Boys as a restless, ungovernable element that would disrupt efforts to secure the frontier. From the point of view of the Black Boys, the brave fellows, The imperial government was there to protect them, and if it failed to do so, or actually endangered them as they saw it, they had the right to resist it. Dowd writes, Although the events surrounding Smith, the Brave Fellows, and the Army were extraordinary, they were extraordinarily forgotten, overshadowed by the Stamp Act riots in the port cities. Years before Lexington and Concord, these Pennsylvanians organized by the hundreds, fired on regulars, arrested regular officers, and captured a British garrison, and neither the colonial government nor the imperial army could stop them. Dowd also makes the important distinction between the legalistic acts of the black boys and the lynch mob mentality of the Paxton boys. 
Paxtonian murderers killed Indians in the name of God. Black boy rioters imitated Indians to the point of besieging British garrisons with bullets and war cries in the name of the law, with the limited purpose of restoring their families and forcing the army to attend to their interests. As they did so, their leader openly admired certain facets of Indian life. This admiration did not make him a friend of the Indian, just as the increasing tendency of British Indian Department officials to sport moccasins and beadwork did not disguise their efforts to dominate Indians and profit from the hardy speculation in Indian lands. Incidentally, the Black Boys episode uh, was made into a 1930s movie called Allegheny Uprising and starred John Wayne as James Smith. It was an extremely important episode in American frontier history, and uh, it's probably worth an episode of its own. If you're interested in pursuing it further, I highly recommend Robert Sparrow's book, Frontier Rebels, The Fight for Independence in the American West, 1765 to 1776. You could say accurately that Pontiac's War kind of laid the powder train that led to the explosion of the American Revolution. The proclamation of 1763, as we've discussed, was seen by colonial elites and common people alike as an unreasonable imperial effort to constrain the growth and prosperity of the colonies. The actions of the brave fellows, or black boys, was an early episode of defiance and and actual armed resistance to imperial authority. It's not a coincidence, and it's not insignificant, that the stamp tax protest broke out on the Atlantic seaboard at the same time the black boys were resisting imperial authority in the backcountry. Sparrow writes, The two movements, one based on the frontiers and the other on the coast, were traveling parallel paths, disconnected and yet headed in the same direction. The key difference was the target of colonial anger. Like the black boys, colonists in the seaports claimed an unyielding loyalty to the crown, so they blamed the passage of the Stamp Act on a dangerous combination of corrupt British ministers and unfeeling parliamentarians. They also claimed that the source of their dissatisfaction was a lack of representation in Parliament. If they had representatives in Parliament, they argued, then those who legislated for the Empire would have better knowledge of what the colonists felt. Without such representation, they took to the streets to protest, including the targeting of stamp collectors and the symbolic destruction of the stamps, as a way to awaken their well-meaning king to his misinformed and unscrupulous advisers. Their acts, much like the black boys, were supposed to reveal to their king the bad policy that Parliament had adopted. Frontier people leveled similar attacks, although their anger mainly focused on Eastern elites and institutions rather than imperial ones. They complained of corrupt traders encouraged by what they saw as a Quaker-dominated government that protected its own economic interests instead of providing security for the frontiers. In their governor, who represented the king, the black boys saw an ally who was frustrated by the elite merchant groups. These western colonists saw in Philadelphia the same thing eastern colonists saw happening in London. In 1765, colonists in the east and west were developing similar anxieties about governing, although the causes of these feelings were different. In the east, they focused on taxation, a freer trade, and representation in parliament. In the west, they focused on greater military support, 
a restricted Indian trade, and greater representation in the colonial government. In the West also, there was a pronounced fear and hatred aimed at both an Eastern elite and Native Americans writ large, something that would continue to linger in their psyche and that distinguished them from the movements in the East. At this moment, however, the two movements remained separated. But in time, their shared desire for a more representative government would fuse to create something revolutionary. When war came in 1775, after the firefights in Lexington and Concord, the Pennsylvania backcountry would field a substantial force of militia, including riflemen, who were among the first to march to Boston to take another crack at the British Army, still commanded by General Thomas Gage. You have no doubt noticed that Pontiac himself has been more or less off stage for most of this episode. That reflects his diminishment. The man who sparked the 1763 war became less and less relevant as the years rolled by. Like the other Indians who had risen in 1763, Pontiac made his peace with Sir William Johnson in 1766. And in the next few years, he lived mostly in the Illinois country, as he put it, hunting to pay his debts and support his family. He came to a sad and sordid end. On his way to the conference with Johnson in 1766, he had got into a confrontation with a Peoria man named Black Dog. Knives were drawn and Pontiac stabbed Black Dog. Though the wound was initially thought to be mortal, the Peoria would survive, but uh, Pontiac had initiated a blood feud. In 1769, Pontiac was trading in Cahokia along the Mississippi River when he was approached from behind by a nephew of Black Dog. The warrior clubbed Pontiac savagely in the skull and then plunged his knife into him, leaving the chief dead on the street. So Pontiac's war just kind of burned itself out with all interested parties recognizing that their best interest lay in stopping the fight. But it didn't really resolve anything. The Indians wound up with better trade relations with the British, and the British secured their holdings in the interior of North America. But the causes and conditions of Pontiac's war raised issues that would as Sparrow said, become revolutionary in just 10 years' time and uh, lay the groundwork for yet another conflict on the American frontier in the Ohio Valley, a conflict that is described in the Frontier Partisans podcast series on Simon Gurdy. I have very greatly enjoyed taking a deep dive into the history of Pontiac's War. It's obviously fascinating in its own right, and it was an extraordinarily important moment in American history, and uh, certainly the most successful native insurgency east of the Mississippi River through the entire frontier period. If you're interested 
in delving into this in, in more detail. I highly recommend Gregory Evans Dowd's uh, War Under Heaven, Pontiac, the Indian Nations, and the British Empire. Uh, as a matter of fact, I will soon be giving away a copy to patrons, um, do a drawing for, uh, for our patrons for a copy of that book. Also excellent is A Most Troublesome Situation, the British Military and the Pontiac Indian Uprising in 1763-1764 by Timothy Toddish and Todd Harburn. And uh, I also used David Dixon's Never Come to Peace Again. And if you're looking for a really good military history overview I highly recommend Richard Middleton's book, Pontiac's War, Its Causes, Course, and Consequences. For the Black Boys Rebellion, Frontier Rebels, The Fight for Independence of the American West, 1765 to 1776 by Patrick Sparrow. Um, Also an excellent book. You can spend... Months and months in uh, in Pontiac's war, and benefit greatly from it. Um, I should also mention uh, Robert Moss's great historical novel *Fire Along the Sky*, which is uh, it's fiction, but it's very heavily researched, and and Moss has some really interesting takes on some of the major figures involved in Pontiac's war. I'd like to thank. Our patrons who make all of this possible, who support the podcast and, and the blog, that's Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwartfager. If you're interested in becoming a patron and supporting the Frontier Partisans podcast and the Frontier Partisans blog, the uh, link to our Patreon page is uh, with the show notes for this episode. So I'm going to be moving on next to a new frontier about a century on from uh, Pontiac's war. I'm going to explore the outburst of filibustering that occurred in the middle of the 19th century. Filibustering is is now a political term for a way of stalling a legislative bill. But in the 19th century sense of the term, filibustering was the financing and raising of private expeditions into foreign countries from the United States, and uh, it was an illegal activity. And there was a whole bunch of it going on in the 1840s and 50s as Southerners who felt that slavery was coming under increasing pressure in the United States sought to expand slavery into northern Mexico and the Central America and the Caribbean um, around what they referred to as a golden circle, which would, uh, the northern tier of which would be the southern states of the United States and would encompass northern Mexico, 
the uh, Caribbean coast, the old Spanish main of Central America, and the Caribbean islands. And there were uh, numerous secret societies, the most prominent of which was known as the Knights of the Golden Circle, that, uh, that sought to, to further this sort of imperial ambition. And uh, it makes for some wild stories. Um, the most famous filibustering expedition was that of William Walker, who tried to, uh, to take control and actually succeeded briefly in taking control of Nicaragua. But there were filibustering expeditions that uh, tried to get into Cuba and into northern Mexico. And uh, in some respects, increased the tensions between North and South that led to the American Civil War. So that's the topic of uh, the next podcast episode or two. I'll be working on those over the next couple of weeks, and we will see you down the trail.